0: Uh, now we've seen the covenant ratified with Abraham, but it's yet to be inaugurated. That inauguration of the covenant uh, will take place when Abraham proves himself not faith, or not in faith, but faithful. Uh, so that's what we'll take a look at for our last section here. Uh, So Johnson says here, the second stage refers to covenant inauguration, which confronted Abram with his responsibility to walk before the Lord in blameless fashion. So the first part of this covenant, the promise in chapter 12, the covenant ratification in chapter 15, uh, is all done through the work of God. However, he waits until Abram is ready to receive it. Um, Now, uh, this is going to be the work of God through Abram, where the covenant is already settled. Uh, the unconditionality of the covenant cannot be, uh, be broken by Abram. He's not a party to the covenant that can break the covenant. Only God can break it, and God will not do that. Uh, but in order for Abram to enjoy the blessings of this um, ownership... going to have to walk blameless before the lord now that's uh that's going to be what uh, what the rest of tonight we'll talk about that'll be genesis chapter 17 and genesis chapter 22. Uh, so we see the covenant had been ratified in genesis 15 but for the covenant to be inaugurated in function that demanded a holy walk It had been ratified as an unconditional arrangement, but for the arrangement to function, it required active partnership. So remember, these stewardships that God is giving to man through covenants is creating stewardship partners. Um, We saw that with Adam, with Noah, and now with Abram. Uh, God is looking for a partner in that covenant. Um, essentially to be the leader of nations or the leader of the world, just as he had given to Adam to be a theocratic administrator of the earth. So he is creating a theocratic administration here through Abram. So in Genesis 17, uh, this comes after, uh, this comes after Abram had tried to tried to bring God's purposes about by his own means, having um, Ab or Sarai's handmaid Hagar um, function as a concubine for him to have a son. And Ishmael was born through that union. And um, that is uh, not what God intended to happen. So Abram is, again, not seeking the Lord or the Lord's means to the end, but rather he is trying to effectuate the end by his own means. Uh, But the Lord does once again step in uh, to to, uh, arrange with Abram how he ought to be walking. And he says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So here, he's talking about the inauguration of the covenant, not the ratification. They already have the covenant. God is saying, essentially, don't do this your way. We're doing this my way. Um, I will multiply you exceedingly. So Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And simply that's what Abraham means, is the father of many nations. Uh, some have pointed out that the uh, the hey here, the H um, is in the Hebrew, the same um, letter for uh, like Holy Ghost, Spirit, Wind, so that some point here and say it's, it's uh, Abram coming to life in faith. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's simply changing his name to reflect his position, his promises, because we already have uh, evidence of Abram's faith back in Genesis 15. Um, so God is changing his name to reflect the promise of God, the surety, that God will bring about that promise, because as of yet, Abram only has one son, and it's not a son by Sarah. So this multitude of nations to him might sound at this point still a little crazy, and in fact, Abram and Sarah are both guilty of laughing at God when he uh, promises them uh, that they would be uh, fruitful, because Sarah at this point is 89, and Abram is 99, and Sarah has been her entire life. But anyways, uh, God continues, I have made you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So this has been added here to be God to you and to your descendants after you. That will become a primary function of the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. But here is the first time it's been added to the promise given to Abram, that he would specifically be the God of him and his children. And that's why we see uh, God often referred to as the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He continues, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So at this point, uh, it's hard for God to be any clearer with Abram, what exactly he will uh, bring about through his line, what exactly he is promising. Uh, Johnson here says the role of Abram and his offspring is to keep God's covenant throughout the ages. This perspective is toward the future. Keeping the covenant will involve the circumcision of all males born into the family. This is God's branding as a physical reminder of the existence of the covenant, a covenant sign similar to a rainbow. This brand placed the responsibility on fathers to communicate about the reality of a relationship with God and the existence of the covenant to the next generation. So this uh, covenant will be given to successive generations because it is an eternal covenant given to the descendants of Abram. And uh, keep in mind, again, that Moses is the one writing the book of Genesis, and he's writing it to the Exodus generation. Uh, The Exodus generation, when they came out of Egypt, none of them were circumcised. Their fathers did not pass down this covenant to them. That's why it was necessary for Moses to remind them of their history. Uh, and part of that here was in giving them the command to circumcise themselves as a physical reminder of this covenant with God. So God said further to Abram, Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house, or who is bought with money from any foreigner, who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house, or who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here we're talking about covenant faithfulness, not necessarily salvation. The covenants are not means of salvation, but they are the expectations that God puts on his saved people. And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So now, just as we watch this progression of the promised seed go from Abram to Adam to Seth, down to Noah and his son Shem, then to Terah, to Noah. Now we've seen it going. um, We're from Terah to Abram. Now we've seen it going to Isaac. So God is promising this specifically in conjunction with Sarah, that not just Abram's seed, but also the seed coming from Sarah uh, would have the same blessing. So he's drawing Sarah into this covenant as well now to establish Absolutely, that this will be the physical seed of Abram with his wife, Sarah. So here Johnson says, a similar promise is given to both Abram and Sarah, since the two are mentioned with respect to a father and a mother. It is improbable that spiritual offspring of Abram are intended. That's because spiritual children are, are spoken of in terms of Abram's spiritual children, but never Sarah's spiritual children. Sometimes the descendants of Abram, the promises given to Abram, are dismissed and said, well, that's to his spiritual offspring. That can't be true because Sarah is brought into this covenant, and it's to a physical descendant. So you could even look at it as the physical descendant of Sarah, the spiritual descendant of Abram. Both of those truths need to be uh, functioning together in order for the covenant to function in Abram's descendants. So it is improbable that spiritual offspring of Abraham are intended here. Isaac, the son of Sarah, shall be the offspring with whom God will maintain his covenant. Thus, covenant partnership is narrower than merely physical descent. Rather, covenant partnership refers to both physical and spiritual descent. Thus, a boundary is set in context that only physical and spiritual offspring will be included in the full covenant blessing. The path from faith to faithfulness progresses, but not always smoothly. This is Johnson kind of summarizing where we've been from 12 to to 17. There are faithless relapses when faith slips into scheming. At the brink of Isaac's birth story, here is the very promise, but it's in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. Uh, it is ever to be fulfilled. It will owe very little to man, or if it is ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man. Yet the Lord delivers him as he had when he traveled to Egypt. So what's happening here between chapters 17 and 22? Uh, in chapter 20, uh, Abram again encounters someone who he lies to about Sarah's uh, relation to him. So he did this in Egypt. He does it again with a man named Abimelech, where he lies to Abimelech and says Sarah is his sister. Well, now he's been given specific revelation from God that his descendants would come through Sarah. So it is particularly problematic for Abram to take that so uh, flippantly that he would compromise that union between he and Sarah uh, in order to save his own skin. He is not thinking of God's eternal purposes through that union. Uh, So again, we see uh, a relapse in faith, but not in God's dealing with Abram. God is faithful to his side of the deal, Uh, Abram's uh, position in God is already taken care of, but whether or not Abram enjoys those blessings um, depends on his faithfulness. So Abram's faith had grown in spite of lapses to love God personally, yet God demanded that he sacrifice his only son, whom he also loved, God's ways can be confusing. God had said that he would maintain his covenant through Isaac, and now God demanded that Isaac be sacrificed. Who did Abram love most? God or the son God had provided. Impossible demands only find their resolution in God. Now, I think that's a very important point that Johnson's bringing up here, that God was specific that his covenant uh, would be fulfilled through Abram's son, Isaac, not through any other son that he might have, but only through Isaac. Well, now what God does is he says, all right, go in, sacrifice Isaac. Johnson brings out, I think, only half of the issue here. First, Abram does have to consider who does he love more, the God who gave him Isaac or the son who he received from God. Um, But I think even more, is testing Abram's faith. God has promised that the covenant would be fulfilled through Isaac. Uh, God is bound to that covenant. He's bound to his word. It is impossible for God to lie. So how much does Abram trust that God is who he says he is? And that's going to be the content of Genesis 22, which is the last chapter we're looking at here. Uh It says now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So when God, at this point, gives Abraham a command, this is fresh off his failure with Abimelech, uh, where God again has chastised him, but Abraham has come to uh, the pinnacle of his faith in God, where uh, His faith is being tested in the greatest degree here, but God has brought him to the point where Abraham can trust um, God. If he had given him this kind of commandment 10 chapters earlier, Abraham didn't even know who God was in chapters 11 and 12. But God has uh, graciously guided Abraham to a point where he understands who God is. He understands that God will be faithful to his covenant in the same way he said he would be. So God asks him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham knows that one way or another, God will accomplish that covenant through Isaac. Thus, Isaac must survive somehow, whether it be through resurrection or through provision. Uh, It doesn't say, but we know that Isaac... Uh, or that Abraham does trust that God will provide. And we see that here in verses four to six. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. So Abraham tells his servants, we are going over here to worship and we will return to you. Uh, Abraham fully intends or expects rather to return with Isaac because God has promised his covenant and God has promised his covenant through Isaac. Uh, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. So also, uh, Keep in mind that Abraham was finally given his son, Isaac, at the age of 100. Now, Isaac is probably less than 20 years old here. If Isaac uh, wanted to, he could very easily overpower his father. But it appears that Isaac trusts his father who trusts God. Abraham has been faithful in passing down to Isaac the word of God, and the lessons of God, so that Isaac trusts his father at this point, despite the fact that he is staring death in the eye. Uh, So the two of them walked on together. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For, I now, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So this was the ultimate test and proof of Abraham's faithfulness, his ability to function as the steward of God's covenant. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. All right, so as soon as Abraham has shown his faithfulness to God, uh, God immediately responds to that faithfulness of Abraham. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So because of the obedience of Abraham, the function of the covenant has become uh, the central promise here that it will pass through Isaac and that uh, the nations will be blessed by Israel. Uh, all right. So in summary of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, by this guy, Reynolds Showers. Um, I grabbed this summary from him. Now this name is um, misspelled. There's no Y in his name, just in case anyone wants to look him up. Uh, so he says that there are three levels of promises given to Abraham here. Um, so the personal promises to Abraham that, we, uh, that he would see come to some extent. Uh, God vowed to bless Abraham and to make him a blessing to others. This did happen. He was a blessing to others, uh, the king of Sodom to Lot. Uh, he was, it was said that he would make his name great. Abram's name is uh, even to this day considered a great name. Uh, it is the, I guess, the father of the Christian religion, the Judaic religion, and also the Islamic religion. They all revere Abram as uh, the father of their faith, uh, to give him many descendants. This did happen. Uh, Isaac was given um, Jacob, and Jacob was given 12 sons. These nations, um, uh, these 12 sons became a great nation. Uh, So he became a father of a multitude of nations. Now, each one of the children of uh, Jacob could be considered a nation. Also, he does have descendants through Ishmael, and they also became great nations. Uh, So his seed was multiplied. But I think uh, the covenant language speaks only of his seed through Isaac. So I think it's it's particularly here dealing with the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Also, to give him the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Now, Abraham did... Uh, receive ownership of that plot of land, but he did not receive possession of it. Possession of it would be given to his great-great-great-great-grandchildren. But through that entire time, it was belonging to Abraham and his descendants, even though they were not possessing it. Uh, To bless those who blessed Abraham and to curse those who cursed him as well more than national promises concerning Israel, that God promised to make a great nation of Abram's physical descendants, that's the actual people of of Israel, uh, to give the land of Canaan from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates, to Abram's physical descendants forever. Uh, Even today, they maintain that covenant where they they do own the land, uh, even if they are not possessing it. Uh, Prior to 1948, when they were not living in the land, they still owned the land as far as God is concerned. To give the Abrahamic covenant to his descendants as physical seed for an everlasting covenant, this demanded that Israel never perish completely as a people, and that as long as they existed, they do have ownership, even if they do not have possession of the land. And finally, the universal promises which would affect all peoples of the world. God vowed that all families of the earth would be a blessing through Abram's physical line of descendants uh, that is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus' statements in Matthew 25 also promised blessing to saved Gentiles who will aid persecuted Jews of the tribulation period and judgment to unsaved Gentiles who will not aid them. Uh, Later on in in Revelation, we'll look at the sheep and the goat judgment, and I think that particularly hinges on this promise to Abram to bless those who bless him and to curse those who curse him. Uh, all right, so Showers here has to say that Moses promised that even though Israel would become idolatrous and evil and would be scattered and suffer because of its sin, in the latter days it would have the opportunity to return to God and to be obedient because God would not fail Israel, nor destroy it, nor forget the Abrahamic covenant which he swore to their fathers. Several things should be noted concerning this promise. First, it is the same people who would depart from God and be scattered from the land of Canaan, who would also have the opportunity to return to him and be obedient in the latter days. This implies that the literal nation of Israel will still exist in the latter days, and the God, that God will have a program for that nation during that period of history. Second, the Abrahamic covenant would still be in effect with the literal nation of Israel in the latter days, in spite of its idolatry, evil, and traumatic history of dispersion and suffering. So that promise from Moses comes from these verses here in Deuteronomy 4. He first uh, tells the nation that they will fall into idolatry and they will be judged by kicking them out of the land, but then he does promise that God will regather them. So when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything, and to do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice for the Lord, your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. So as we go through the book of revelation and we see, um, the state of unbelief that the Jewish people are in during that final seven years. Uh, and we look today and we see the modern uh, state of Israel, how they are in unbelief. This is not foreign to Scripture. Scripture did anticipate that the nation of Israel would exist in the latter days and that they would exist not in faith, but that at the in the last days, They would turn their face to the Lord and listen to his voice. And that will be the very culmination of the tribulation is when the nation of Israel will turn back to the Lord. Um, So that is what is here foreseen in Deuteronomy 4, that they would be judged by being kicked out of their land. They've been kicked out three times and returned. Um, So this is not even unprecedented that they're existing today. Uh, The unprecedentedness of it might be that it was 2,000 years ago that they were kicked out and then returned. No nation has ever survived 2,000 years out of its land. Um, So it is a very unique return, um, and probably just in time for the Lord's return. Uh, We're yet to know for sure. But here, uh, Reynolds Showers concludes uh, by just driving home a little further. The everlasting nature of this covenant. God regards the nation of Israel as the continuous owner of the land of Canaan in spite of its various dispersions from the land. God punished Israel for its sins by removing it temporarily from its own land, but he will never punish it to the extent of abolishing its ownership of that land. To do so would be to violate his promise in the Abrahamic covenant to give the land of Canaan to the fathers and the people of Israel forever. When God judged Israel by scattering it from its land after rejected its Messiah, Jesus, he regarded that scattering as a temporary loss of occupancy, not a termination of ownership for Israel. So uh, I guess a good illustration of this, uh, I had a student in my class one day, and he was pretty upset, um, his friends were teasing him. and So I asked him what's going on. He he very bashfully told me that his mom kicked him out of the house. Uh, So he was asking his friends if he could stay with them and none of them would let him stay with them because they didn't want their moms knowing that they were hanging out with him because the moms talk and uh, probably aren't looking too favorably upon this one student. Well, my reaction was not, to go to the administrative computer and change his address. Uh, That's that's not at all what we understand by being punished and removed from your place of um, housing. Uh, That's basically what's going on here with Israel. Their disobedience has caused God to put them out of the land. But we don't understand and we shouldn't understand that they have been permanently removed from the ownership of that land Just like when a parent kicks out their child for a time, it's a punishment. Uh, That child has not been disinherited from that household. Rather, they are uh, temporarily in uh, probation. So finally, in Romans, uh, Paul speaks about this uh, fall from grace, as it were, um, for Israel, but that it is not a permanent fall. So, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In the same way, then, there, also, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace is no longer grace what then what what Israel is seeking it has not obtained but those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened just as it is written god gave them a spirit of stupor eyes to see eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day and david says let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So this Abrahamic covenant is a covenant forever with the physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham. And even at this time, God has preserved a remnant of Jews uh, to whom this covenant belongs. Uh, All right, so that is the Abrahamic covenant.